Revelation 11, verses 1 through 14. Then I was given a measuring rod, like a staff, and I was told, Rise, and measure the temple of God and the altar, and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple, leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the, trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents, because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Some texts are harder to listen to than other texts. That was a hard text to listen to. But uh, I believe that there are some encouraging words as we come to this uh, particular chapter in the Bible. If you're visiting with us, um, and we've we got a lot of people visiting with us um, on a unique basis, but if you've just kind of popped into church, um, we're going through a series on the book of Revelation. And it's a timely uh, uh, period to do that uh, because it helps us get a handle on the world around us. And it, the reason it helps us get a handle on the world around us because the book of Revelation is heaven's perspective of earth. The book of Revelation helps us see things from heaven's point of view, from the throne's point of view. And it's an entirely different perspective than the perspective that we get on our own or that we glean from the news media or the news feeds that we read on a regular basis. This is an alternative vision of reality, an alternative story of how things are and how things will be. That's what the book of Revelation gives to us here on earth. We've been worshiping our way through the book of Revelation for a number of weeks now. And there's two main groups in the book of Revelation. There are the earth dwellers. Uh, and those are earth dwellers are characterized by individuals who pursue idolatry, who live in sin, who reject God, who don't want the Lamb to have any influence in their life. And then there are those who are set apart by God, the church, the people of God. There's only two kinds of people in this world and only ever have been two kinds of people. 
we've been looking at one group of people, the earth dwellers, from the perspective of uh, uh, seven seals, seven trumpets, and a little while, seven judgments. And what those are, are they're the response to the people's prayers, those who have suffered for their faith as they cry out to God, and God brings, uh, God avenges their death and their suffering. And so those are judgments that God pours out on the earth. Those are judgments that are taking place right now. They are uh, judgments that have been taking place uh, during the last days, which start with the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And with each one of them, uh, they go back over the same ground from a different perspective. And with each one of those different judges, the seals, the trumpets, and the bulls, there is an intensification to them. And so there's this realization that God is um, dealing with rebellion here on earth in an ever-increasing way. But there's also the picture of God's church. And we wonder, well, what in the midst of all of this is happening to God's people, those who profess Christ as their Lord and Savior, those who follow the Lamb? And so in the midst of these uh, judgments, particularly the first sets, between uh, the, the, the sixth and the seventh seal trumpet, there is what is called an interlude. And it gives us a picture then of God's people. It tells us what God is about with his people. And then we are right now in a second interlude, which comes between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. And it is another reference to what God is doing with his people here on earth. Like the, the judgments where there's a, a going back over the same ground and an intensification, so with these two interludes, they go back over the same ground regarding the church, but there's an intensification or a further development of what God said the first time. Think of this as um, a, a hockey game. I was almost going to use a soccer game because the World Cup is on right now. But think about a hockey game. If you were to watch hockey on TV right now, uh, you would get it from numerous perspectives. There would likely be a, a, a camera right above center ice. There are cameras in both of the nets at either end of the rink. There are cameras that are often set on the corners about 30, 40 rows up that shoot down. There's a, a cameras where the announcers are that give you a different perspective. There's also guys that walk around with handheld counters and they, 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 they look at people that are in the penalty box. They look at people that are behind the bench and from time to time they'll zero in on different players and just watch what they're doing. And so they're all showing the same game but from a different perspective. That's what we have going on in the book of Revelation. The same time period, the last days between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, but from all these different perspectives to help us understand what it is that heaven is saying about earth. So the first interlude, just so we catch up with the people of God, the first interlude responded to a simple question. After the, the first seal judgments were poured out on the earth and they were devastating on the earth, and they are, they're, they're largely war and the ravages of war that humankind has experienced for the last 2,000 years. Finally, one, one person asked, well, who can stand? In the midst of all of this suffering, in the midst of all of this destruction, in the midst of the judgment of God, who can stand? Well, Revelation chapter 7 answers the question, the people of God stand. And it takes us through this, this notion that the people of God are sealed. The people of God have been sealed by God, and to seal means to protect. It means to secure. It means to number. It means to set apart. And so when it talks about the people of God being secured, what it's saying is that God has set his love upon a vast number of people before, from before the foundation of the world. They are his and his alone, and they will never be lost. 
That's what the 144,000 is. It's God's perspective on his church, a perfect number. When John hears that number, he turns around and he sees a great multitude. That is what John sees. He sees this multitude of people that nobody can count. And at the end of chapter 7, you see the picture of this church in heaven. And so one of the things that God wants us to understand, heaven's perspective, is that while the earth is reeling under his judgment, his people are secure and protected from his judgment and will in fact be secure into eternity. We come to the second interlude, which we're in now, and it answers a second question. So what is the church to be doing during this time? What are the sealed ones to be up to during these last days when the judgments of God are falling on the earth? And he answers it from two perspectives. He says, first of all, in the first couple of verses we'll look at, he says that the church is invincible. That now the church is a measured church. And then we come to the, the second part of that. He says, but the church is exposed. The church will live in a world which will hate them and will persecute them. And even some of them will give their lives for the faith. But God will raise us all from the dead at the last trumpet forever to be with God. And so we come to this, uh, uh, the first uh, couple verses of chapter 11 where we begin to get a biblical metaphor of the church. And as I say, it goes back over the ground that we read in uh, uh, um, Revelation chapter 7. Some of you may remember Jesus uh, when he prayed in John chapter 17. As he's praying to his father hours away from his death, he says, Father, I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. I think as Christians, we need to grasp that and wrestle with that. Our, our goal is not to see as far, how far away we can get the, from the world, to get into monasteries, to, to go far away into the distant place because we want nothing to do with the world. Jesus says, no, I don't want them taken out of the world. I want them, though, to be protected from the evil one, to be kept from the evil one. So one way we've been kept is we've been sealed. I already mentioned that, chapter 7. The church has been sealed by God. But the next way that we are kept, he describes it from a different perspective. He says we are measured. Measuring is a way of defining what is yours. Measuring is a way of taking account to what is yours. Measure is a way of saying, this is mine. I will secure it. I will keep it safe. When we send out those who survey land, what do they do? They survey boundary lands. They survey property. And what's within their survey site, we, we do it so we know what is ours. Well, that's the same message that John is trying to communicate through this measuring of the temple. He's saying that we are safe and secure. Now, it can't be a literal temple. John is writing in 96 AD. The temple had been leveled to the ground. There wasn't a stone standing upon another stone in 70 AD when the Romans came in and absolutely disseminated it. And so there is no literal temple to measure. And when we look ahead to the future, when we come to the new heaven and the new earth, there is no temple there either. Because John, writing there, he says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So what is the temple that he's asked to measure here? Well, the temple is the people of God. The temple is the church in all of its fullness. When you come to the New Testament, the physical temple was always a foreshadowing of the temple of Jesus Christ. And in Jesus, you remember, Jesus said that in him, the fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form. The temple was the place where God's presence dwelt. And remember another place, Jesus says, destroy this temple. He was looking at the literal one. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Well, he's not talking about the literal temple. He's talking about the temple of his body being raised up. 
And as we go on in the New Testament, what we understand is that secondarily, the church is called the temple. We, the people of God, all of us here today who are followers of Christ, are the temple of God. We are Christ's body. We find this revealed in a couple places, just to give you a, so you know I'm not just blowing smoke here. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Do you not know, speaking to the church, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Not a literal temple, but a physical temple or the the body of Christ temple. And then over in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul there talking about the church, the people of God being brought into the family of God. He writes to them and he says, for, for through him we both have access to one spirit through the Father. We're no longer strangers or aliens, but we're fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple of the Lord. That's the description of the church. We are the temple of the Lord. And then in 1 Peter Chapter 2, we know that uh, it says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. And so the New Testament describes the people of God as the temple of God. And so what John, again, is measuring then is the people of God. The altar is also a place in which the people of God are underneath it, crying out to God and bringing their prayers before God. And he says, and also to measure those who worship there. So this is a a reference then to the church. John is told to measure the church, to seal it, to secure it, to protect it, to let it understand that these are God's people and God's alone. Can we be described by this image? Well, I've already shown a few, but back in Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, at the end of the church to Philadelphia, when he says to the church there, he says, to the one who conquers... I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. That's not a a, a physical, um, uh, material pillar. It's a a personal, a a personhood temple. We are made a temple or a pillar in the temple of God, never to go out of it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven with my own name on it. So we're not to think, when we read this, of timbers, And of stones, when we think of the temple of God, we're to think of the people of God. And so John is hearing, or John is told to measure the temple. It's the same as the sealing, as I said in chapter 7. Sealing and measuring are the same thing. It sets us apart. It identifies us as God's people. It's telling us that we are owned by God. We're secure by God. We're safe by God. We're protected by God. God knows who we are. In other words, we are invincible. He will hold me fast. That's something that we need to keep in our heads as we are called then to be faithful witnesses out in the world. But notice that John doesn't just say here, he's told to measure the temple, but he's told not to measure the outer court. Well, the outer court and the inner court were of one and the same structure. But John is not told to measure the outer court. And notice what he says there. It is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city 42 months The holy city is the bride of Christ. And we say, what is this? The bride of Christ is going to be trampled by the nations for 42 months? Say it's not so. Like, may it never be. 
It's a reference back to the book of Daniel. And as I've said, to understand the book of Revelation, you've got to go back and forth in the Old Testament. But Daniel is describing in chapter 7 uh, four kingdoms that will come upon the earth. And he comes to a fourth kingdom, which is a particularly hideous, hideous kingdom, a particularly destructive kingdom. And he says, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth. It will be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth. And notice this word, and trample it down and break it to pieces. It's the same word that's in verse 2 of chapter 11. Then Jesus, in another place, is describing the destruction of Jerusalem. And he says, they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled. There it is again. Trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. And then notice this. Until the time of the Gentiles is complete. This is not a short period of time. This is a long period of time in which Jerusalem symbolically is going to be trampled by the nations. So in other words, the Gentiles will have access to the temple. But not the inner temple, only the outer court. What's John saying here? I, I believe it's, it's, it's this. I think what John is saying is that the inner court is the church, as I've said, and spiritually we are safe. If you are a Christian today and you are a child of God, there is nothing that can snatch you out of his hand ever. You are safe, you are secure now and forevermore. You have been brought by the blood of Christ into a new covenant and you will never, ever be separated from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. But I think what he's talking about when he comes to the outer court, he's talking about, though, the fact that we will physically suffer for our faith. That there will be times when we testify to the Christ and we speak the word of God and we stand up for God in the world that we live in, that we will face suffering and persecution. And that's what it means then when it says that we will be exposed. So we're invincible, we are safe, we are secure, but we are exposed physically to the onslaught of those who hate Christ and therefore hate the church. And so we come to verses 3 to 6 then. This is the general statement about the church, invisible but exposed. And now we look at how that will take place in the world in which we live. What is the church to be doing in this present age, these last days, this period of time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ? Well, he begins with a, he mentions a number there, 1260. It connects this back with verse 2, which mentions 42 months. And so I just need to say something really quickly about numbers, and I, I hope you're staying with me. There is so much to say in these verses and only a few minutes left to say them. But numbers are important in Revelation. Remember, Revelation is a unique kind of letter. It's, it's what we call apocalyptic literature. It's a kind of literature that is, that is all about symbols and visions and signs and beasts and all sorts of things. And numbers are, are a frequent um, uh, reference in the book of Revelation. And they're not all to be taken literally. Many of them are to be under, understood figuratively. So the number seven, it's, it's a number that speaks of wholeness and perfection and completeness. The number four means the same. The number 10 means the same. When you hear 666, you don't picture a number 666. You picture an attitude. You, you picture a structure. You picture a, a power, a force. And so numbers are often meant to be taken symbolically in the book of Revelation. When we read 42 months and we read it twice in Revelation, chapter 11, verse 2, and chapter 13, verse 5, and then we have 1,260 days, and we have that twice 
in the book of Revelation, 11.3 and 12.6. And then three and a half years, which we, is a time, times, and half a time, which is three and a half years. We find that once in Revelation 12.14. Within these three chapters, all these references to number. First of all, these are all communicating, I believe, the same amount of time. Well, they are. In, in ancient days, a month was 30 days. And they would have corrections in their calendars for that. So a month was 30 days. So 42 months, 42 times 30, is 1260. 1260 days is three and a half years. Three and a half years is 42 months. They're all the same number. They're all referring to the same period of time. So as I see it, they are describing not chronological time, not a point in calendar that we can say, well, this 42 months starts on June 23rd and then go out 42 months and that's when it's ending. It's not describing a, chrono a, a chronological time. It's describing a period of time. And as I see it, these numbers are describing the totality of the last days. The last days in which, in which the church will be trampled on. The last days in which we are sealed and protected. The last days in which the beast from the, from the sea will, will have power and authority in this world in which we live. It's a time when the beast and his followers will persecute and even slay some of the people of God. So again, these numbers are not describing chronological time, but theological time. They're describing for us what God is up to. Not moment by moment, hour by hour. They're describing not a quantity of time, but a quality of time. This time of suffering in the world. I've already mentioned Daniel chapter 7. John draws heavily on a reliance of the Old Testament. In Daniel chapter 7, he talks about the impact of the leader of this fourth kingdom, this vicious kingdom. And Daniel writes this of this leader, He shall speak words against the Most High. And listen to this. He will wear out the saints of the Most High. And he shall think to change the times of the law. And they shall be given into his hand. For a time, times, and half a time. In other words, this fourth kingdom is describing the kingdom of the beast that is prevalent during the last days. And the saints will be given into his hand. For a time, times and half a time, 42 months, 1260 days. The good news is just when we think all is lost and we think we're in trouble, it stops with three and a half years rather than the full seven years. God in his mercy and in his wisdom, he cuts those days short. And I think Jesus refers to that when he says, if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And so these numbers, 42, 1260, three and a half years, describe this period of persecution and distress, this period of exposure of the church to the trampling of the nations around them. It describes what will happen as you and I, the people of God, go out and boldly declare, prophesy, tell people about Jesus and about the word of God. We will face difficulty and suffering. So who are these two witnesses? There's so many um, 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 uh, different options that are out there for who these two witnesses are. There's literal options and there's symbolic options. As I see it, this is, these two witnesses are symbolic for the church. And I'm skipping over a whole lot of stuff because I, don't, I, I can see some of you thinking, oh man, really, how much? We're only at verse 4 and we've got what? 
and, and we got numbers and we got beasts and we got this and we got that. So I'm just telling you how I understand this. I understand the two witnesses to symbolize the church and the present ministry of the church in the last days. It's what the church is to be about and what the church is to be doing in these last days. We are the witnesses. We are those who are to have a prophetic ministry or to speak forth the gospel of God, who are to be those who stand and witness on behalf of Christ, who was the faithful witness. We follow in his steps, and wherever God sends us, out to our schools, out to our places of work, in camp for the next two months, we are God's faithful witnesses. And the priority of our ministry is to speak forth the word of God as though we were clothed with sackcloth. And I'll mention a little bit of that in a moment. The two witnesses are patterned after, there's been a number of suggestions, whether it's Enoch and Elijah because neither of them died, whether it's Joshua and Zerubbabel because they are mentioned in Zechariah chapter 4 as those who are worshiping before God, a lampstand and two olive trees, or some because of the, 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 the events, um, talking to fire coming down from heaven and, 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 and floods and, and all those kinds of things. They refer them to Moses and Elijah. So there's an Elijah-like ministry. There's a Moses-like ministry that the church has as it serves the people of God. Moses was one who, who brought the people of Israel out of Egypt and pronounced the judgment of God on Egypt's idolatry. Elijah was the one who spoke for the word of God in the midst of incredible idolatry during the reign of Ahab. And it's a way of saying this is our calling, to confront rebellion and hard-heartedness and stiff-neckedness and to say when the judgment of God comes, you need to repent and turn from your sins and turn to follow the Lamb. I think they're symbolic because the two ministries of these witnesses inter, inter, interact, interconnect. They're not separated. They both have the qualities of Elijah and Moses. Their ministry is characterized as a worldwide ministry. When they die, the whole world watches on them. So that suggests to me that the whole world is participating in the persecution of the church throughout these last days. It's a period of 1260 days, 42 months. It's the last days. And so this, um, this witness and this persecution is taking place during this whole last days. They're described in Zechariah 4, 6. It's a great passage, which, which in the end of the day says that the ministry of Zerubbabel and Joshua is not by might nor by power or strength, but by the power of the Spirit of the Lord. It's a way of saying that as we go out, we can only be empowered and we can only be infected as we're filled with the Spirit of God and as we're empowered by the Spirit of God. We go out with boldness because the Spirit of God fills in us and, and, and empowers us and emboldens us. They are called lampstands. If you've been with us, you, you know that a lampstand in Revelation is a reference to the church. That God, Christ, is walking among the seven lampstands. And Revelation says, and the lampstands are the church. So this helps me see this as these are symbols of the church. Why only two? I suspect it's to emphasize the dual, that dual witnesses are needed to stand as evidence in a court of law. Something can only be established by two witnesses. And so we, the body of Christ, are these witnesses, the faithful witnesses of God during these last days to go out and, and, and proclaim the, the, the word of God and to testify about Jesus Christ. We will be kept safe. We are invincible. Nobody can snatch us from the hand of the Father. But we will be exposed. 
to physical suffering and torment. Why dressed in sackcloth? I think it's symbolic. Um, when when uh, a community wears sackcloth, and we find this in Scripture, it's often a sign of deep repentance and remorse. We aren't to go out boldly with pride and arrogance, but we go out in humility with the reality that we are recipients of God's mercy and grace. We are sinners in need of God's mercy and grace as much as anybody else. But we also need to go forth with a message of repentance and call people back to God and to repentance. I was thinking of Acts chapter 17. In the end of Acts chapter 17, again, as uh, Paul is speaking to these people on Mars Hill, he says, the time of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day in which he has appointed and given assurance to all by raising Jesus from the dead. And so what is the church's role in these last days, the church's role, our role as followers of the Lamb, is to be faithful witnesses in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, our King. And we are to go out in our workplaces. You know, we, we have a hard time sort of understanding the, 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 the suffering of this passage because we in Oceanside and in British Columbia really suffer very little for our faith. But if I have time, I would take you through stories of uh, the, our brothers and sisters in Iran and Iraq, our brothers and sisters in Korea, our brothers and sisters in China, our brothers and sisters in places in Africa, our brothers and sisters around the world over the last 2,000 years who have suffered horribly because they have been a faithful witness to Christ. This is what we're called, to be a faithful witness to Christ. And then finally, what are we to expect in this present age? I've already hinted at that. It's a time of trampling. It's a time when the outer court, us physically, are exposed to those who hate the gospel and all that it stands for. We're introduced here for the first time to the beast in chapter, uh, verse 7. Uh, a terrifying figure, I, I think, actually. And it says here that, um, and when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. A couple things that just just to drop in your head about the beast. The beast is the second person of the counterfeit trinity. One of the things we have to know is Satan is about deception. Satan is always trying to counterfeit God and overturn God. And so the book of Revelation tells us that operating in these last days is a counterfeit trinity. There's the dragon, which is Satan himself, who tries to take God's worship upon himself. There is the beast, who if I have time over the next number of weeks, and I don't know if I will, but you can go and see the parallels between what the beast does, how the beast behaves, and what Christ does, and how, what, how Christ behaves. The beast is the counterfeit of Christ. And then we have the false prophet, who is the counterfeit of the Holy Spirit. And so we're introduced for the first time to this false trinity and the beast who is uh, the one who is the counterfeit of Christ. And the second thing I want to say is, do you notice that it's chapter 11 now? And this is the first mention of the beast. Why is it that when we think of the book of Revelation, one of the first thing that comes to our mind is the beast. I want to know the mark of the beast. What does 666 mean? And who is this beast? And it, it should grieve us. Because the book of Revelation is not about the beast. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that our first thought should be, what does Revelation tell me about Christ? 
What does it tell me about God? What does it tell me about the Lamb? And if you've been here, you know that the first 11 chapters, or certainly the first five chapters, the whole focus is on the throne that governs the universe, on the scroll that describes God's perfect will and plan for the universe, and on the Lamb of God. And so while we should take heed of the beast, he shouldn't be the thing that draws us to the book of Revelation. There's one more final connection that helps me understand that we're not talking about two literal witnesses. We're talking about the church. And let me read verse 11, verse 7, and then read verse, chapter 13, verse 7. 11, 7, it says, And when they had finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Now go over to chapter 13, verse 7. It's talking about the beast. And it says, And it was allowed to make war on the saints, the church, the people of God and conquer them. It's the same group of people, same description, just different language. All of this will take place in the great city. He describes the great city as being an epitome of three different cities. He says that the great city, like Sodom, Sodom is meant to help us understand the significant immorality. Sodom represents the height of immorality. Egypt represents the height of idolatry. Jerusalem represents the height of hatred towards God because it was those in Jerusalem that crucified our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so the great city sums up all of those cities. The great city is the great city Babylon, which represents everything that is against God and God's kingdom. And so it's those in the great city all around this world in which we live, Las Vegas, Berlin, London, Cairo. It's those in these great cities that persecute and trample the people of God. And they seem to win, don't they? It says they trample on the people, the, the, the witnesses, and they kill them. And they gaze on their bodies, not just members of a literal Jerusalem, but members of the people and tribes and languages and nations of the whole world. And all over the world, cities will celebrate and silly cities will, will exchange gifts and this apparent glee that the church of God has been destroyed. And do we not see that, loved ones, in the world in which we live now? If you do not go back over 2,000 years of history in different pockets of the world, do you not see places in which it seems like the church of God has been driven into the ground, never to rise again? Only in years or decades later, all of a sudden, God raises up the church in that place again. We see that in, in, in China. The church was driven into the ground, and now there are hundreds of millions of believers in China. And it also points us to the very end, the incredible final victory, when all of God's people at all the same time will be raised up at the sound of the trumpet, when that trumpet sounds and when Christ departs, we will hear that voice, come up here. What an incredible few words that will be for the people of God. We will go up to heaven. We will go up to meet Christ as he descends in the clouds. And notice it says, it's not a private thing. It's not a secret thing. It says as we are taken up to heaven, it says that, uh, that their enemies watch them. It's not a secret thing that will take place. John himself says in verse uh, 7 of chapter 1, Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. 
Jesus describes it in Matthew when he's talking about the events of the end times. And he says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and great glory. And one of the events that will take place during that last day when we hear this come up will be the presence of God will be felt. And this is the third time that we're now um, seeing an earthquake and hearing an earthquake. One-tenth of the city falls, the great city. One, seven thousand are killed. And the rest were terrified and gave glory to God. Some understand this, and there's a whole explanation, and I, I'm, I've run out of time, but there's a whole explanation of why some believe that what is being represented here is this opportunity for a great return to God. I think there's some merit, but I, I'm not sure that's what, that's what that's saying, because when Christ comes back, there is no further opportunity to repent. I think that what John is communicating here is that when Christ comes back, no matter how rebellious one has been, no matter how stiff-necked one has been, no matter how idolatrous one has been, no matter how immoral one has been, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ Jesus is God. And I think that's what John is getting to us as we get to this end. Skipped a lot. I hope I haven't confused you. What I want you to hear and what I want you to be encouraged by in the midst of our exposure as the people of God is that God will keep us safe and that we are invincible and that we are to go out in that invincibility to our neighborhoods and our homes and our schools and our camps and we are to be faithful witnesses to God regardless of what happens to us, whether we lose our job, whether we are kicked out of our home, whether we're beat up in a back alley, whether we're, we're ostracized, regardless of that, we are to speak as faithful witnesses of God. Because one day, we will hear, come up here. And forever, we will be with the Lord. Let me end with Paul's words. I think they're in Corinthians. I can't, oh yeah, they are in Corinthians. But we have this treasure, Jesus Christ. The gospel. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus might be manifest in our body. Oh may God, manifest the life of Jesus through our faithful witness in these last days. Father, I thank you for your word. May it be an encouragement to us as your people. So it's not like we're caught off guard when things go sideways as we're speaking for you, but rather we will know, oh, that's what you told us would happen. That's what you gave us insight would take place. Embolden us, I pray. Fill us afresh and anew with your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.